Then as he, Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones, what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famine and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. As we come to Mark 13, we need to have a couple spots where we stop just to kind of catch our breath and focus on those passages and the context of those passages. In Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse or the return of Christ, it is very Jewish. There are things here that uh, it, it is very Jewish in its context and what it's bringing forth. Now, Luke's was a little trickier, and Matthew gives more insight, like, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. And each one of these three synoptic gospels give different insights and direction to the topic of the return of the Lord. But as we think about the return of Jesus Christ, one thing is very clear. He promises to come back. Jack was just praying about the Lord coming back. It's the greatest reality of the scriptures that Jesus is going to come. And he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And before we get through this chapter, we'll see that tonight. Now, when we study the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's called eschatology. It's the study of end time events. And you have all those Old Testament prophets. You have the book of Revelation. You have prophecies about the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians. You have things about the, the catching up of the church, the rapture of the church in First Thessalonians, clearly defined and seems to be implied, if not clearly defined, in First Corinthians. So when we come to this topic of the return of the Lord, it's so broad and there's all kinds of flowchart directions you go with it, but there is a simplicity of it for us tonight, and that is, without a doubt, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies that declared what the reign of the Messiah, the promised king of the Jews, would be like. So keep that in mind as we go through this. And again tonight, as we pick it up, we're going to have a lot of Jewish context, which I believe there's principles for the church, but the fullest application is for the last day believers when God renews his covenant with Israel when the church is caught up to be with the Lord. Now, in these eight verses that we just read, this whole conversation begins with one of the apostles making comment about the glory of the temple. And the temple was amazing. There's no doubt about it. The, the temple was an incredible structure of its day built. And it's the, it's the work of men. And it's incredible, the, the engineering skills and the brilliance of the men, uh, Solomon and the rebuilt temple after Ezra it came back in the captives. And then Herod fortified it, Herod the Great. And it's an amazing thing. And if you recall, one of the accusations against Jesus was he said he'd tear down this temple and raise it up in three days, if you recall that. But of course, he was speaking of his body, and the Bible makes that very clear in other passages. So that sets in motion. And then now we see that the, the four fishermen who are in the business together, the two sets of brothers, John and James, Peter and Andrew, they come to Jesus. And, and they say, "What? look at their question. When will these things be? He doesn't say. And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And even then, he doesn't give specific sign, but many different 
signs, if you will. So we, with that in mind, we pick up verse 5. And as we think about things that mark the end of the age, as we think about the timeline of human history, we have the dawn of creation with Adam and Eve, literal people, young earth. And their fall brings death on the universe, which Romans 8 affirms in the rest of Scripture, where the universe is winding down, the law of entropy. We have that 1,500 year, the primeval world, the pre-flood world, with all those saints, Seth and, and Noah and them and Enoch who walk with God, and then the judgment of the flood. And then we have the post-flood world, the ice age, the post-flood world, about 500 years to Abraham. Then we have Abraham and his descendants coming to the promised land. That takes us to about 2000 BC. You know, a couple more thousand years to, a thousand years to get to David, or 500 years to get to Moses and the nation of Israel, 1500 BC. Another 500 years to get through the judges to David, and then a thousand years to get to Jesus. And, and now, we have him speaking here about things that will summarize his return the second time. So now we're in this church age where we have been going for at least almost 2,000 years. And we see a lot of signs in our day and our time that can be matched up with plenty of things about Scripture, even something like Daniel where it says knowledge will increase in the end of the age. And obviously the exponential understanding of technology is off the charts in the last 150 years. I mean, it's incredible to think of what a marvel it was when they built the Trans-Pacific Railroad around 1870. You know, that was the marvel of all time for human abilities to do things to connect the, the continent. And now you look at where we are now, where we've been to the moon, we've got, you know, the internet, all these things, it's incredible. So there's all these things that we can look at that show us, we know the Bible talked about the push for a global government at the end of the age, an all controlling global government. After World War II, we see the seeds of the world wanting a global government so we don't have the nationalism and the fascism that led to World War I and World War II and those alliances of that type of a world. So, you know, now we have a new generation emerging that just will just give itself over, it would seem, to whoever will rule over them. And, and it just, the world just seems so ripe for the Antichrist, and we would tend to focus on that with the end-time events and what would be a little bit discouraging when we see the demise of a nation and the demise of a Christian culture like our own country and things like that. It'd be a little discouraging, but remember, we're not looking for the rise of the Antichrist and the end of the age that way. We're looking for the return of Christ and glory for his church. So when we think about this passage, we first got to just put there that Jesus promised to come for us. He promised to come for the church, and the next great event in the timetable is Jesus coming for his church. The second coming of Christ having two elements to it. He comes for his church, which is a movement from earth to heaven when he calls us to be with him, as it says in 1 Corinthians 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and most likely implied in Matthew 24 as well. And then at the end of that seven-year period, there's a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, which is spoken of in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, spoken of in the book of Revelation, and events described within it also affirmed in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians and other places of Scripture. Jesus is going to come for his church. That's the next great event on the timetable where he's coming for his church because the great tribulation is the wrath of the Lamb, and we're not appointed to wrath, but he's paid the wrath for us. So he comes for his church, a movement from earth to heaven. Then there's a seven-year period where God renews his covenant with Israel, that was broken off when Messiah was cut off. Jesus was crucified, according to the book of Daniel. So there's a seven-year period where God renews the covenant of Israel. They're there. Netanyahu's the boss, yet again, after the most recent election. The United States of America recognizes Israel, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and other nations have since followed and more will follow. It's the epicenter of the world. We know that, Jerusalem. All end-time events focus on Jerusalem, and it's all in play right now. 
We hear of rumors of war, wars, rumors of wars, nuclear bombs with terrorist organizations, so much going on that so on and so forth with the scriptures. That seven-year period fits most likely here, what we just read. The fullness of what we're reading here really fits in that seven-year period because that's God's unfinished work with Israel in that 70th week of Daniel from the Old Testament and affirmed in the book Revelation. And that seven-year period has a three-and-a-half-year period and then another three-and-a-half-year period. So the seven really gets cut in two. And since we know that no one knows the hour that the Lord will return for his church, we can never know. We're told to always be ready. But you see, with the Great Tribulation period, once the Antichrist goes in the temple and proclaims himself to be God, you can count the 1260 days and you can know. It's very important to understand that distinction. So for the church, we don't know when he's coming for us. But if it's possible, certainly from scriptures and people have the capacity to understand it, although the Bible tells us it's a great delusion after the Lord takes his church out, if you can understand it, all you have to do is read the Bible and know from the time you see the Antichrist go in the temple, proclaim himself as God, to be worshipped as such, that global leader, that it's 1260 days till the Lord comes back with his church. So seven years for his church, up and out, three and a half years in, Antichrist revealed clearly as the Antichrist, and Israel here the whole time, seven years in that covenant with God, many of the things in the book of Revelation all unfolding, and then at the end of the age, Christ comes with his church to establish the kingdom. That's the template. Keep that in mind as we're looking at this, okay? Obviously, there's a lot of studies you could do on this, just giving you a template so to get the context here. So we're told, Jesus said in verse 5, take heed that no one deceives you. In the last 150 years, even in America, there's been many false Christs. There are many false Christs. The liberal church has false Christ. We can go to any liberal church in America, and right now they're a false Christ. They, they don't have a virgin birth Jesus. They don't have an atoning death on the cross Jesus. They have a false Christ. We need to understand that. Our land is filled with false Christ, even in traditional denominations that once preached the gospel. We can, we can go to all kinds of churches in Orange County this Sunday, and those ministers do not believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, they do not believe he lived a perfect sinless life. They do not believe he died on the cross in our place. They do not believe he physically rose from the grave. They do not believe he ascended to heaven. They do not believe he's at the right hand of the Father. And they do not believe he's coming again in glory. So just the liberal church alone in America is filled with false Christ. Because what I just affirmed is the true Jesus on those points. That's who we, he's the preeminent one here in this church, and he's the head of the church, and not just here, but of the universal church of all believers on the planet on this day, preceding us on this day tomorrow until he comes with a trumpet to call us up and out before that great tribulation period begins. But if you look at the Christian cults, particularly in America, like the rise of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science and all these things, and they all seem to come out of America around 1850 to the 1900s, they have false Jesuses as well. Their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's a, he's a created being. He's not the creator. He's, a fall, he's an angel who fights other fallen angels. The Mormon Jesus is that Jesus. There's a lot of false Jesuses. The Jehovah's Witness Jesus is not God equal with the Father, but distinct. He's, he's the first creation of the Father, which is just bad interpretation of the scriptures. It's damnable interpretation. Jesus is God. We've seen that very clearly in the totality of Scripture. And he's one with the Father in his being, in his purpose, in his uh, essence. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. So when we think about false Jesus, there's lots of false Jesuses. There's a lot of false Jesuses. The Islam has a false Jesus. They believe Jesus is a prophet, but they don't believe he's the son of God. They do not believe God has a son. So their version of Jesus is a false Jesus. Now, 
we can live in a country of people like that and get along with them. We should be able to, so long as they want to get along with us. But if they want to kill us because we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and we have conflict because their Jesus is just a prophet, then there is a problem, right? But this country is based upon the, the marketplace of, of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Now, we know as Big Brother rises up, that gets curtailed in the end day. You know, it's, we see less and less of that being allowed and more ostracization of people who would speak up. But let's, this is the context. Jesus said the number one thing that would indicate his return is there would be many false Jesuses. Our land is filled with false Jesuses. Our planet is filled with false Jesuses. And I can tell you 200 years ago, there weren't nearly as many false Jesuses. Because Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism, Christian science, and these various other cults all have come about in the last 200 years. So that's just, that's just a fact. That's not subjective. That's objective fact on world religions and worldviews. Now, the Jews are looking for a Messiah, the Jewish people. They're waiting, they're, they're waiting for their Messiah. Now, they reject Jesus as the Messiah, but they are waiting for the Messiah. And even today in Israel, we understand this, the Temple Institute, all these Orthodox Jews... They want to rebuild the temple. They want to have the red heifer. They want to reinstitute the animal sacrifices, sacrificial system, and they are anticipative, and they are zealous, and they have a lot of American money, by the way, too, backing them, Jewish American money. They want to rebuild the temple, animal sacrificial system, and they are ripe for the Messiah. They want their Messiah to come, the one promised in the Old Testament who we believe has already come, Jesus Christ. But since they reject Jesus, Jesus said, you reject me, but you'll receive another one who comes in his own name. I'll come in my father's name, but you'll reject the one, you'll receive the one who comes in his own name. Israel's waiting for their Messiah. They're in Jerusalem. They're a nation. None of these things existed even 80 years ago. They all exist right now. Right now. 80 years ago, Jews were in the Palestine, but they weren't a nation they didn't have Jerusalem as their capital. They weren't one of the strongest economies in the world and one of the, certainly one of the strongest military powers and certainly one of the greatest intelligence organizations, Mossad, in the world. We live in that day, WG. We live in the generation and the time where all these things have come to pass. False Jesuses are the first sign that Jesus warned about for the end of the age. Now, Jewish context, the Jewish people are so ripe to be led astray by a false Messiah, and they will be. But when that false Messiah goes in the temple and says he's God, they'll know they've been had. God says, put me to the test. I prove to you I'm God because I tell you things before they happen, and my accuracy on prophecy is 100%. You can know a true prophet from a false prophet, because a false prophet says one thing's not true, he's a false prophet. But the true prophet always comes to pass, and God says, put me to the test. So what I'm sharing right now is that we know how it's going to play out, because God gives us the detail in his word, and everything in his word has come to pass, and the things that are there that haven't come to pass will come to pass. You can't disprove anything God's prophetically spoken in his word. It has all come to pass. Like Jeremy taught a few weeks ago on the Psalm 34 study, just fulfilling one prophecy of Jesus in his first coming is extremely difficult. And how do you fulfill his being buried with the rich when he's already dead? So how could Jesus try and force himself to be buried in the grave of Joseph Arimathea's in fulfillment of the prophecies from Isaiah 53? Jesus fulfilled the law of compound probability for Jesus to fulfill even eight of the prophecies concerning him are astronomically almost unattainable, let alone hundreds of prophecies. God's always accurate. And so as we're reading these things, he's telling us what's going to be, and it will be. Now, we've always had false religions, but again, the context is false Christ. 
So as we get to the end of the age, false Jesuses will increase, particularly when the church is taken out, because the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians, because people reject the truth, God will allow them to believe a lie and a delusion. So the whole world's going to go after a false Christ, the Antichrist, who has all the power of the devil, we're told, and all the lying signs and wonders of the devil. And God allows the world to go after him because they rejected the witness of the truth. It's all there in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation. So we're told to take heed. So there's one good application right away for all of us. Take heed. Just having conversations with people about our faith, what we believe. Someone recently asked me, what do these people believe? And I said, well, it's Jesus plus this. And whenever it's Jesus plus anything, red flag right away. Not yellow flag, red flag. When salvation is Jesus plus our baptism, or Jesus plus this belief system, or Jesus plus uh, tongues, or Jesus plus uh, baptism by full immersion, Jesus plus... uh, uh, the Pope and the Vatican and the, and the teachings of, of the Catholic doctrine. Yeah. If it's Jesus plus Church of Christ only baptism, Jesus plus John Russell, Jesus plus Joseph Smith, so on and so forth. It's Jesus. Jesus saves us from our sins. His name is Savior and there is no other. And he's a pure Savior and is able to save to the uttermost. So this taking heed is a real warning to us, to us, the people we love, the generation coming behind us, that we give them Jesus, the prophesied, the one outside of time, before time, the one who created all things, the one for whom all things are created, the one who holds all things together, the one who came into the world in fulfillment of prophecy, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived the perfect sinless life, who replaces the first Adam, who in Adam all sin and die, who becomes the second Adam, the head of the race, restores that, and by believing in him, sends his Holy Spirit to born us, birth us again, a second birth through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That Jesus. And that Jesus died on the cross, having never sinned. He shed the blood of God different than ours for our sins. And he rose from the grave physically. He did not undergo decay. And he appeared to hundreds for 40 days. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's coming again. That's the Jesus we hold on to from here till you breathe your last and he comes for you. That's the Jesus you're going to see like when Stephen saw Jesus said, hey, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father right now when they're killing him. That's our Jesus. That's a permanent one here. And if anyone at any time tries to give you any other Jesus or Jesus plus something that man conjures up because men are just so demented in their thinking because our compass is wrong because we're born sinners and we can't think straight. The natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit for they're spiritually discernible. So we must be born again. We have a bad compass. Left to our own, the Bible says there's none who seeks after God. No, not one. So we need to hear the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, repent and believe the gospel, and we're born again. And then we have the mind of the Spirit, and we can understand the things of the Spirit. In the end of the age, there'll be more false Jesuses, more false teachings about Jesus, more renouncing of true faith, more renouncing of the Bible, more attacks against the Bible, more attacks against people who believe the Bible. They're going to keep coming because the world is at war with God, and they're in rebellion to God. And the Bible tells us it gets worse, not better, in the sense of the hostility against God. Now, I believe great things for the future, and I believe a great day for tomorrow for our kids and our kids' kids and our future generations. But the Bible's very clear that at the end of the age, the love of many grows cold. You cannot deny the Scriptures say that there are many tribulations and afflictions for those who serve the Lord. We enter by the narrow gate. It's been the same gate for 2,000 years. You can't make it wider, and you can't make it more narrow. Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. 
But broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many go thereby. And it says there's a way that seems right to man, but then thereby is death. We want to make sure our faith is based upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who we set our eyes upon Jesus, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the suffering of his life and the death on the cross. And he's our example from here to eternity. God's not trying to make us comfortable with false Jesuses and appeasing doctrines for fallen men in a fallen world. God is refining us in the power of the Holy Spirit to become more like his son and to reflect his son until the son comes and takes us home. And that's the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and all those great saints who came before us, the Amy Carmichael's, Elizabeth Elliot's, John and Betty Stamm, and all these people, Hudson Taylor's, and, and the, you know, all these people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We can never forget that the true Jesus is the true Jesus, and he's revealed in the scripture. And this world is moving toward a rejection of his person and the presentation of all kinds of false Jesuses. In every account of Jesus talking about before his return, the number one thing he says is false Jesuses. And our society wants, to believe in, wants us to believe in different Jesuses. The true Jesus is the bloody beaten Savior with the blood of God shed on the cross for our sins. And he's a man of sorrows. And he's molding us and shaping us by his Holy Spirit, producing death in us of our pride, our flesh, and our carnality to that life would come forth of the Spirit in our life to become more like him and to impact our generation to win people to him through our brokenness and what we go through in that journey of the narrow gate. There's one Jesus, and he's the Son of God, and he's the head of this church. It's the number one sign preceding his coming, and it will peak right up into the time that the Antichrist goes in the temple to make himself as God. That'll be the peak of this. Now, we also see the sign of his return, that the wars and rumors of war. Now, we've always had, verse 7, we've always had wars and rumors of wars. I mean, we're coming off two world wars. There's been the, the war of ideologies between communism and uh, capitalism or, for, or freedom of speech versus suppression of speech toward human rights versus totalitarianism and authoritarianism. And the planet is still just at such war with these different ideologies that always bring forth death as opposed to bringing forth life. Our generation has been spared a lot of the wars. When you, when you think of the atrocities brought on the Jewish people and all kinds of people groups in World War II, it's almost inconceivable. Like it is almost inconceivable if you really meditate about what happened in World War II in Asia, in Europe and around the world. It's almost, it's almost incomprehensible. If you really think about it, it's, it's, just, it's just incomprehensible. Like 50 to 80 million people dying in war and people groups being eradicated. So when you think of war and rumors of wars, like what could surpass that? I don't know, but it's going to be worse. There's greater wars to come than what this planet's seen. We have terrorist wars all over the planet right now, right? These, these strange wars, you know, war without borders and the Russians are here, and they're, they're there, and we're here, and we're there, and the Persians are over there, you know, Iran. And it's, listen, we know how it plays out. Russia and the Middle East, Islamic Middle East, they roll into Israel thinking they're going to crush Israel, and God defends Israel in the Valley of Megiddo, and that's the end of the age. Jesus comes out with the church. He destroys the Antichrist with his very appearance, because I've said before, light and darkness cannot go and happen the same place. It's not five rounds in octagon, Jesus and, you know, the Antichrist. The moment Jesus shows up, that's it. So whatever wars and rumors of wars, and isn't there rumors of war? I mean, it's endless rumors of war in the Middle East, right? 
I mean, it's endless rumors of war, but we're told not to be moved. But it, it'll move more that way. Then you have the earthquakes. Okay, so in the lake of the planet Earth, how Lindsay proved the increase in earthquake activity on the planet, I don't know. There's always been earthquakes. There's going to continue to be earthquakes. There's going to be really big earthquakes. And the book of Revelation tells us about some really, really, really big earthquakes moving full mountain ranges in time, space, and matter. So this, whatever this has been, it's going to be more. And Jesus says so. Famine. Famine will happen. And we know in the book of Revelation that it's a day's wage for a, a, a loaf of bread, right? That, that's the, the book of Revelation tells us that. We know the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that pestilence and famine are in there. So this will be the end. And there's going to be uh, food issues. And, you know, people get so worked up. And I understand that... The, and we're all empathetic, and the body of Christ does a lot. I mean, right now, Brian McDaniel and Cross the Light Ministry, which we're a part of, they're, they're doing food relief for Haiti. We're all for that. We're for that. But in the end, we're for life. And we want to, we're for education and building people up and encouraging them and bringing Christ in the equation. Our sister church, uh, Orange County Christian Fellowship, is going to Haiti this month. And they're building a new church building. And one of the things the church is going to do is digging a well and it's building ovens to be the source of food in the community, to bake bread in Haiti, to feed the people. You meet the practical needs as best you can. And ultimately, we're not just giving them bread for the temporal, we're giving them the bread of life for the eternal when we give them bread. Famine's famine. We know in the book of Revelation that famine is part of the whole end game. And troubles. Now, the word troubles in verse 8 is uh, translated uh, pestilence. It, it, in, in the other, it, we're told it's pestilence. So we understand that pestilence and, you know, contagion, profound disease. There's been, of course, there's been all kinds of major flus that have killed, you know, the, the flu of 1917, just 1918, just wiped out like 2% of the planet. We know in the Civil War, more people died from infirmity than actual combat in those death totals in the Civil War in America. Plagues viruses, it's, it's a fallen world. We have all that now, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to accelerate in the end of the age. It'll, it'll be worse. So it's possible we're seeing worse now in our timeline, but this is Jesus talking. So we know it's going to be worse in front of us and more in the future. It's going to be worse than whatever it is today or was yesterday because this is the end of the age. So this is where it's going to go. And this is why we want to preach the gospel. This is why we want to love people. This is why we want to win people to Christ because our hope is in Jesus, not in a government to feed us, or give us vaccinations to keep us from these things. Jesus is our hope, and he is the only hope for the end of the age. He's the only hope for any age and any generation. Well, he said it best. Look at the last phrase in verse 8. These are the beginnings of sorrows, and that's what it is. And then he says on, we read on now in verse 9. So that's just the introduction. Those are not to be, false Jesuses, number one. Wars and rumors of war, number two. Earthquakes, famine, and pestilence. Those are the five at the end of the age. Now, verse 9, but watch out for yourselves, for they, whoever they is, will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogue. See the Jewish context. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake and for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, a brother will betray brother to death, and a, fa- and a father is children, a child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, 
by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get clothes, his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, Jesus says, watch out for yourselves in verse 9. And it's very, everything we just read is very Jewish, right? We have a location, Judea. That's, that's Israel. That's not the United States of America or South America or Europe. It's Israel. Verse 14, the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. That is the Antichrist going into the temple and proclaiming himself to be God. That's very Jewish. When you're in the field, that's the agro-society of, of Israel. And of course, again, the synagogue. So let's, let's look at this. And break down a couple things. First of all, the gospel, verse 10 says, must be first be preached to all nations. Now, we know the gospel's been going out since the first generation all over the world. We know that in the book of Revelation, it's implied that the 144,000 of the Jews that are sealed are witnesses for Jesus, that the gospel goes out through them. We're also told that angels go out around the face of the planet before the end of the age proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And we know that the church is under the Great Commission and has been to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We also know in the book of Revelation that of every tongue, tribe, and nation, there's an ethnic representation, as we can understand it as best we can, before the throne of God, before Jesus Christ worshiping him in the book of Revelation. We are entrusted with the authority to get the gospel out in the end of the gospels. It tells us that in Mark, preach the gospel to every creature. Go out with this authority I've given you, make disciples of all nations. So we understand that. So the church is occupying and as best we can fulfilling this and has been for a long time. But in the end, when the, Jesus comes to the church and we're taken up, he seals 144,000. Plus, most likely it's Moses and Elijah who have a witness during the great tribulation period as well. The witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 during the great tribulation period. But then the angels actually go out. So one last time before Jesus comes in glory with his church, one last time the gospel will have been proclaimed to the entire world. One final time in totality to seal the fruit and close the deal. That's in the future. But until then, we get to partner with people like Brian McDaniel and Brian Jameson planting churches in Haiti and doing our part. That's what we do. We do our part. We do that. They're in North Africa, and they're in, they're in uh, the heart of Africa. They're, they're in South America. They're in Europe. We do that. We support the gospel going out, and we pray, and we do the best we can to invest in ministries that we think are fruitful. We've received a legacy from generations before us, and we're part of it now in our generation. And when we're gone, I would hope to God that your children and your children's children and the future grandchildren, that they will invest in the gospel worldwide as they've learned from us, their parents and their grandparents. Because once the church loses the vision for the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, we've lost the vision for our ultimate position because the high holy ground that we hold, the high ground that we hold, of the high moral ground, is that the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. And that puts us over all civil government like we talked about last week. We looked at Caesar, rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. So the gospel will go out to all nations. Now, look here what it says. Okay, so 
Look at these words associated for these Jews, these last day Jews who are believers in Christ. Now, again, some of this, we see some of this in the book of Acts with the early church, and certainly this is church history. But this context is Jewish, and we need to keep that in mind. So verse 9, you will be beaten. Verse 11, you will be arrested. Verse 12, you will be betrayed. Verse 13, you will be hated. Now, let's be honest. Those are four words we don't want to hear associated with our life. Like, who wants to get up at 6 in the morning and have the Holy Spirit say to them, hey, you know, today you're going to be beaten. Today you're going to be arrested. Today you're going to be betrayed. And today you're going to be hated. But make no mistake, this is the legacy of the church. See, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know they hated me first. Woe to you when men speak well of you, when all men speak well of you. You will be hated for my name's sake, and blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake, and blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. When Paul established the early churches there in the book of Acts, he said, through many tribulations we must inherit the kingdom of God. The world's rejection of Christ is, is absolute. It's demonically led, it's demonically inspired, and people in darkness, led by the devil, persecute and attack people who walk in the light. Because men don't come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed. And the way people avoid the light is to either stay away from the light, or if you're not going anywhere, to eliminate the light. That's what people do. That's why Christians are dying all over this planet this day. Reading some recent information from Voice of the Martyrs and other ministry sources, there's a general consensus that the persecution against Christians right now, this year, is stronger than it's been in any time that could be known in the modern era of information that we have in the information age. I mean, right now, the Chinese government is trying to completely eradicate any form of religion in their communist society because communism rejects a belief in God, whether it's Islam, Christianity, or, or any other belief. It fully rejects it. When Eric Little, the gold medalist from Chariots of Fire, was thrown in prison when the Japanese were occupying there, he, they were all put together, and they, and they put the missionaries of different belief systems together, the Catholics, the Protestants, the cults. All, they put them all together because the Japanese, because the emperor was God, it doesn't matter. They rejected all forms of religion other than that their emperor was God. And that's what the Chinese are doing with their belief system in communism and their government in communism. We don't need to wake up and say, oh, Lord, let me be beaten. Oh, Lord, let me be arrested. Oh, Lord, let me be betrayed. Oh, Lord, let me be hated. All you need to do is live for Jesus. And if you live long enough, it's more than likely you'll experience those things. Many of you in this room have maybe been beaten verbally, but not physically for Christ, but maybe you've been beaten physically for Christ. You've been lied against and slandered. Many of you in this room, I don't think any of us have been arrested for Jesus, but like I said last week, teaching on taxes. Hey, if you're arrested for taxes, tough luck. I'll still visit you. But if you're arrested and have trouble with the government, let it be for the gospel. There are so many Christians in prison right now for the gospel's sake. And let me tell you this. Then you see betrayal. This is family betrayal. It's going to be worse in the end than it was in the beginning. It's going to be worse. This is the future. This is not the past. Because we saw at the very end that great tribulation, verse 19, will be so bad, it's worse than anything anyone's ever seen. It's not the first century when Titus destroyed Jerusalem because World War I and World War II, without a doubt, are way worse than anything that happened in a regional conflict with the 12th Roman Legion and the Jews in 70 AD. That didn't even come close to comparing to anything that happened in the Middle East. Rommel and the, the North African campaign was far more bloody than anything that happened with the Romans in Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this great tribulation, Jesus says, it couldn't be referring to past things because it's so great a tribulation, it, sur it surpasses any previous tribulation... And none will come after it that's, that's worse. So 
Without a doubt, we know this is still in the future. This is in the future, this great tribulation. And for the Jews that are living for Jesus down the back end stretch, particularly in the great tribulation period, there's going to be beatings, there's going to be arrests, there's going to be betrayal, and there's going to be hatred. But again, let's be honest. We saw this in the first century church, and we see this in church history. This is church history as well, but the context is, is definitely the end of the age. Betrayal. The thing about betrayal, and I've talked about this, it hurts so much, is because you trusted someone. See, if an enemy just hates you, they just hate you. But betrayal is someone you trusted. Betrayal implies that you had a relationship with that person that you loved and trusted. So whether it's a betrayal in marriage, a betrayal in business, a betrayal in society or in your neighborhood or your community, betrayal is betrayal. It's someone you trusted and then they betrayed you. Betrayal cuts deep. And then hatred, to be hated. Some people might just hate us because they don't like the way you look, the color of your skin, your gender. They might just hate you because they just hate you. Some people just hate it because of who you are and how you look. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fear beatings, and we don't need to fear arrest, and we don't need to fear betrayal, and we don't need to fear being hated. Because the legacy of Jesus Christ being faithful to his church is absolute. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And if we ever experience beatings, betrayal, hatred, or imprisonment for Jesus Christ, he is there with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is always with us. And it is in those afflictions that will draw us closer to the Lord. Paul and Silas, what are they doing in Acts 16? They're singing praises to the Lord. Peter's going to be executed in the morning in uh, Acts 11. What's he doing? He's sleeping. And the angel wakes him up. Stephen is being pelted with rocks. And what's he doing? He's forgiven the people pelting him with rocks as he sees the glory of Jesus. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. And we're told to fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So when we revere the Lord, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the beginning of knowledge. So our fear of the Lord gives us knowledge to understand the things that really matter in life and time and eternity. And our fear of the Lord, our Heavenly Father being over us and he knows best, is then also wisdom to help us believe and do the right things at all times. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge to truly know what is knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom to know what is the right decision. And even so, he says in that hour, don't worry what you're going to speak. So why are you going to worry on May 7th for what you're going to speak on May 8th when you experience these things? You, you can't prepare for this. In the moment, because we're meant to live in the moment with Jesus Christ. We're meant to be dependent daily. This day, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us this day our debts. You see, it's in the moment. So we're not to live in fear. We're to live in triumph and victory of Jesus Christ. This is the narrow gate. This is church history. This is the end of the age for the tribulation saints. And more than likely, this is the increase for the body of Christ coming down the stretch. Do not fear beatings. Do not fear arrest. Do not fear betrayal. And do not fear being hated for Jesus' name. And most definitely don't fear the darkness of the time, the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. We do not live in fear of the Antichrist. We live in hope and triumph of Jesus Christ, the true King of Kings. And we're going to put off this body anyways. This, this mortal is going to put on immortality. We, we got to put off this tent and we got to put on the new glorified body. We're getting an upgrade. We get a brand new glorified body. Man, you got one life to live. We have one life to live. When you read a passage like this and you read texts like this, 
We're not talking about dream big, accomplish your goals, live a large life. No, we're talking about dying to self for Jesus Christ because he died for us. We're talking about reality. This is truth. This is Jesus speaking on the end of the age. We don't need to fear tomorrow. We seek first the kingdom of God today. And if any of us ever find us in any of these four descriptions because of our faith in Jesus Christ, I believe we'll be like the saints of old and we'll find the grace in that moment to proclaim his praises in that moment and sing in the prison or father into your hands, I commit my spirit. And by the way, if you really face that and that really was your end, wouldn't you kind of have a good feeling about your ending? Seriously. I've seen a lot of endings. This is a good ending. Any movie that's ever been made of Stephen being martyred, I always go like, ooh, that's got to hurt those rocks, you know? But it's still a good ending. What could be more honorable than being put to death in this realm because you're a proclamation of the glory of the coming realm and your faith in Jesus Christ who's over it all? The last application is do not fear these things because the devil will make us want to fear these things. The grace that we'd ever need for any situation is there for us when these events are happening. He's God of the mountaintop experience. He's God of the lowest valley, and we can trust him in all of it.